Last week, the main theme and thrust of the text we were working through was justice. And we understand the need for God to talk about justice. And for the most part, we're thankful that he is a God of justice. We look around and we see the injustice in the world and it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with us. We don't like it and we don't want it. But it's a side effect of living in a world that has been broken by sin. The world is full of injustice. But here's the thing. For Christians, it, it, it seems the idea of the world being full of injustice is, is more tolerable when we, when we isolate ourselves in our churches and our church communities and are then able to convince ourselves that the injustice of the world is, is out there, but not, not in here within, within the four walls of our church. We prefer to think of the failings of the world and, and the failings of man being like out, outside the church. Totally lost my spot. There we go. Being those who, who don't believe, those, those who may not know better, those, you know, those out there. We're not very good at recognizing and admitting that we face the same issues in here. We struggle with sin and failing and idolatry and sexual immorality and you name it. Our sin causes all the same problems inside the church as sin causes outside of it. But how, how can that be? We're supposed to run from our sin. We're, we're supposed to obey God's commands. The church is supposed to champion God's directives. We're supposed to champion justice. We're supposed to champion biblical statements. We're supposed to champion the fundamental truths of Christianity. We're supposed to proclaim these truths to the world around us so that they might believe in and come into relationship with God. Well, how are we doing with that? A common phrase about the church, and man, I fully agree with it, is that the church is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Man, is that true? And in that statement, we are admitting that the beggars inside the church are just as needy as the beggars outside the church. We're admitting that the people inside the church are just as sinful as the people outside the church. It's just that they've got bread. They've got Jesus. They've, they've got forgiveness. And, and, through, and, sorry, and though these things, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, forgiveness, they, though these things stir in us a desire and the strength to be better, to fight against our sinful tendencies, we do not consistently win those battles. And so we find that the same sin that manifests itself outside the church also manifests itself inside the church. Idolatry, addiction, slander, gossip, envy, adultery, fornication, lies, treachery. Are we going to say that these things don't happen in churches? Maybe not every one of them in every church, but at least one of them in every church. What church hasn't been rocked by scandal at some point in its existence? And, and how does the church respond to scandal? Do we cover it up? Do we condemn it? Do we treat those within our walls of sanctity differently than we would treat those outside them? Oh, church, how often we see ourselves once again as the people of Israel, and particularly the people in the first portion of our text this morning. Would you read with me from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 18 to 25? We read the word of the Lord. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? 
Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot in Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is good and it is true. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. It's a bit shocking to hear these words and know that they are directed at God's people, at Israel, at the church. We are so much more comfortable with them being directed at anybody else. But here they are. Through the prophet Isaiah, we are called deaf to the calling of God, to the voice of God in his words. God declares us blind to what he has done. He says that we do not pay attention to how he moves and and how he directs. God accuses us of ignoring him, of forgetting him. He accuses us of focusing on our, our own agendas and being dialed in or not being dialed into his agenda, his calling, his direction, his, his mission. We get so distracted by living on the earth, we forget why we are here. We get so caught up in our own problems, our own infighting, our own thoughts, our, our own vision, our own comfort, our own sinfulness and sinful desires that we neglect our relationship with God and the purpose for which he has kept us on earth. In the first place, this whole passage outlines how Israel, how God's people, how the church has fallen short. And we have fallen short for the church is made up of sinful people. And when it comes to sin and injustice, there is no out there or in here. We're all in that same sin boat together. One could argue we need a reformation. A little over 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg and sparked the Protestant Reformation. Luther was angry with the Catholic Church. In his 95 theses, he railed against indulgences, the the practice of paying money in order to be forgiven. He, He spoke against purgatory and against the authority of the Pope. Luther believed that God wants to be in a personal relationship with each individual, calling them, guiding them, leading them, condemning them, and forgiving them, and that there did not need to be any religious interceding on that person's behalf for God to be able to be active in his or her life. Luther believed that the Bible is clear, that our relationship with God should not be gated through some other person through some sect of religion, but that God's desire was to have a deeply personal and intimate relationship with each individual. Luther called out the church and said, this isn't right and it isn't biblical and we need to get back to the Bible. We've become distracted by our own desires. We aren't seeing how God is moving and has moved. We've become deaf 
to His calling. We are ignoring the word that He has given us. Let us get back to the Bible. Let us get back to the word of God. That was the call of Luther for the church of the day needed it. That is the call of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah for the church of the day needed it. And that is the call of the word of God today for the church still needs it. Though I would argue we need reformation more than every just 500 years. (laughs) My heart, our heart, the hearts of those that make up the church are so good at conforming to the sinful nature and to the world around us. We could use a reformation of our thoughts and priorities yearly, monthly, even weekly. But let us be reformed. Let us hear the word of the Lord and let us respond. May it it push us to action. Let us rest in the truth we see in Scripture. Let us not treat our sin as, as if it is different than that of the sin outside the church. But let us acknowledge it and repent of it and be forgiven of it. Let us break away from any political tie that causes us to feel uncomfortable with the words of Scripture. Let us break away from any thought that says that, God, that God's favor is measured by the health and the wealth that has been given to us. Let us break away from any doctrine or teaching that says that the word of God is fluid. That it needs to be adjusted so that it can be understood by the cultural norms of the day. And though we deal with the mundane, we need to pay the bills, the lights need to be on. It is our responsibility to properly care for the facilities that have been given to us. Let us not let that become our mission. God has not called us to make sure that the church building is standing and that there are people inside. All of that, all of that is the side effect of the actual mission we have been called to join him on. Let us not forget the mission to the lost that God has called us to. The purpose for his church, both local and foreign, both visible and invisible. We meet together that we might be built up in Christ, that we might repent and be forgiven, that we might receive and be strengthened by the means of grace, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Word of God, the Bible, and that we would be encouraged by the fellowship with other believers, and that we would rely on this strength and encouragement in our mission to proclaim God's love to the lost. God is on a mission, and he has called us to join him. Will we? Have we? How is it going? Those answers are going to be different for every individual in every church that gets asked them. For the majority of us, the answers aren't quite as positive as we'd hoped that they would be. And as we recognize how we have failed or have been failing in the mission that God has called us to, in the relationship that he has called us to, the depressing reality of our failure feels overwhelming. For we recognize that like Israel at the end of Isaiah 42, we so often turn deaf ears to what God has called us to and blind eyes to what he has done and is doing. And we so continually are distracted by our own interests and desires, by our own fears and struggles. And I acknowledge that this depressing, and as I acknowledge this depressing reality, I am so thankful that the story doesn't end there. Let us continue reading the first seven verses of Isaiah 43. How does God respond to the failing of Israel? How does God respond to our failing? Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. This is directly following the verses we just read. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by my name. You are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is God's response to the failings of Israel. This is God's response to the failings of his people back then. And this is his response to the failings of his people today. To you, to me, to those who believe, may your ears be opened and may your heart clearly hear the words of our God through our text this morning. I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you, says the Lord. Those four words are water to a thirsty soul and a balm to a hurting heart. What do they mean? According to dictionary.com, to be redeemed means that there has been an atoning for a fault or a mistake. Redemption is the action of, of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or a clearing of a debt. When God says that he has redeemed us, he is saying that he has taken care of our debt. He has atoned for our mistakes, for our failings. He has paid the price that we could not so that we could gain righteousness, so that we could gain right standing before God. God redeemed us through Jesus Christ. Through the death of Jesus, the perfect one, the sinless one, the one who did nothing to deserve death. Who did nothing to deserve the sin of the whole world that was heaped upon his shoulders. Through the death of Jesus, the price for our sin was paid. I have redeemed you, God says to his people through Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus perfectly paid their debt. And I have redeemed you, God said to his people through Isaiah thousands of years after Jesus perfectly paid their debt. Through faith in Jesus, we have been redeemed. Rest in that. Let that, that soak over you, marinate in that truth, soak it in, take comfort in the overwhelming grace of the truth and the reality of those words. You have been redeemed, your debt has been paid, Christ has done it because of Christ you are forgiven. Through Christ you have been given faith and when you believe, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become one of his children, you become part of the true church and you are covered with Jesus' perfection, his righteousness and you are redeemed. What a wonderful truth for us to rest in. And for some of us, we will hear these words and then wonder why we even need to open our eyes and ears. If God has redeemed us, isn't that it? Why struggle against a sin that has already been paid? Redemption is not license. Redemption does not put an end to God's desires for us. And we can still choose to leave God's plan for our salvation should we choose to reject Jesus and the redemption that he bought and paid for. So though we are redeemed, we are still called to rest in God's word. We are still called to live lives that reflect the relationship that we have with him. 
We are still called to obey God's commands. We are still called to speak out against false teachings. We are still called to love our neighbor. We are still called to join Jesus on his mission. Redemption does not give license to be fat and happy sheep. God is still calling us. He still has a plan for us. He still has a mission for us. Let us not see redemption as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh God, give us the wisdom and the understanding to realize what our redemption cost you. May our hearts be forever changed by the price you paid, and may we rest in the redemption that has been given us, that we might find the strength to fight our old nature, to open our ears and open our eyes, that we might see through you, that we might listen through you, that we might act through you and your strength, Lord. May the church rest in your grace and your forgiveness and not become lazy or complacent, but be strengthened and become zealously passionate for your mission. Church, let us rejoice in the redemption that we have been given. Let us rejoice in the reality and the truth that Jesus took all of our failures and flaws so that as we fail in his mission, and we will fail, We can know that we have been redeemed. Redemption isn't an excuse to not be in God's mission. It is freedom to know that while we were on his mission, we can't mess it up. God will win. His mission will be accomplished. Our failings have been redeemed. He will use us perfectly in spite of our imperfection. Our God is the God that takes what was meant for evil and uses it for good. When we confess, he forgives And though we fail, he redeemed. As we rest in God's redemption, may our minds be reformed and our eyes and ears opened to what the Lord has done and to what he is calling us to do. What a fantastic, wonderful, amazing, gracious, and loving God we serve. Amen.